back thank you very much for having me back really appreciate it good to see you uh, you're the one of the most popular podcasts on the last season of Thala as well oh, heavens above what's wrong with the world no accounting for taste <laughs> <laughs> so this week uh, we're going to be talking about uh, we're going to do things a little bit differently we're going to be talking about a particular book we're going to be talking about uh, Gilles Deleuze's Difference in Repetition, which is a, a difficult book. It's been about 10 years since I've read it. So I'm hoping that maybe you can uh, tell us a little bit about it and tell us what Deleuze has tried to achieve. So to begin, maybe you can talk a little bit about uh, the background of the book and its genesis. Sure thing. Um, I suppose the first thing to say is Deleuze considered this the very first book where he did philosophy, he actually writes that in a preface a few years later when he's thinking back on the project. Um, it comes out in 1968. Um, it's actually um, his submission for his um, his doctorate. Uh, that operates a bit differently in France. It's, a, it's um, not really at the end of your education, but it's after you've been a professional for some time. It kind of cap is the capstone of your professionalism, so to speak. And um, the idea behind the book was for him to consolidate all of the history of philosophy work he'd been doing over the previous couple of decades and bring it together in, in his own way and, and really try and form his own kind of philosophy, his own kind of ontology uh, for the first time. So before you get to Difference and Repetition, you've, you've got a whole, uh, about 20 years, it starts in 1954 with a book on Hume. There's a massive break. Um, and then you get the books on Nietzsche and Bergson and Proust and Sines. Um, and then he's ready. He's ready for his own magnus opus for difference and repetition. It's a big, thick, chunky book. Um, and it's where he sets down his ontology. It's, as you say, it is a very, very complicated book. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to do it justice. Um, I doubt that. <laughs> but, but maybe we can... Uh, we can we can talk about it and uh, a little bit at least, if not giving it full justice. Okay, so as I understand it, and maybe a good place to jump off is that this book is an attempt to engage in what he calls a critique of representation and identity, and set a new departure for philosophy, a new way of doing things, a new set of concepts. Um, so maybe to begin, we can talk about what what is the the traditional, the canonical, the conventional methods of philosophy that he's criticising. So I suppose um, many people see the book as a kind of rewrite or a critique, if you like, of Kant, a critique of the critique of pure reason so Kant's book from the 1780s um, and I think that's it's fair to say that's 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 a big kind of influence on what he wants to do and what he wants to do is uh, try and look beneath the concept of identity and beneath the concept of representation and see how these concepts come about how they are how they uh how they are formed and why people start with the concept of identity, why they start with the concept of representation. So what then is he trying to do with these two words? The title of the book is Difference in Repetition. Generally, what does he try to achieve with these concepts? It's his way of critiquing identity, critiquing identity. So instead of thinking about the identity between things, uh, where difference is a concept which is a, a comparison he wants to try and understand what difference is in itself and instead of repetition being repetition of the same he wants to understand how every repetition is different and so he's going to replace the concept of identity 
with the concept, if you like, of difference and repetition. That's that's the key move. So that's, there, that's the anchor of the book. There are no identities. There is just difference and repetition. And identity itself is an illusory concept that kind of emerges out of the movements of difference and repetition. So if we take an example, say, yeah. of, I don't know, something that we might assume to have uh, an identity, say a football team, say Manchester United, Manchester City. Um, oh, you're on to difficult territory here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, we don't need to know about football, I guess, to ask that. But I guess the traditional way philosophically would be that there was a team called Manchester City. They won the treble. They won the league. They won the FA Cup this year, and they are markers of identity. Something similar, yeah. But but as you've quite rightly put it there, if you just dig beneath the surface of that identity, look at all of the differences and repetitions that you've got hidden within there. How players change. How 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 over over time. It's it's yeah triggers broom isn't it so to speak where um, from only fools and horses where you've replaced the handle and you've re- replaced the uh, the head of the broom um, that's the more modern version of a very very famous ancient saying the ship of Theseus and Plato yeah. there we go absolutely um, so that's what he's really looking at with difference and repetition um, and, and you know you can even look at it from a perspective of, of an individual you know somebody like David Bowie would be an interesting one to think of in that way, where, you know, he deliberately plays with differences, each different kind of enunciation, different characters that he kind of manifests on stage, but they are repetitions of the same musical person, the same performer, but repeating with difference. So he's going to take this idea of difference and try and find, define it for itself not as just being a marker between two identities, the difference between two things. So the difference between Manchester United and Manchester City. Difference between two books. You know, this book is bigger than that book. You know, he's, what he's going to try and say is, what is difference in itself? And then what is repetition in itself? And these things are going to define for him what, uh, when they cohere, they, they form the illusion of identity. So, I mean, there are some, you've just named some of the chapter titles there, Difference in Itself and Repetition in Itself. I suppose we could go through the chapters if you were amenable and generally talk about them. But is, is Yeah, I, I, I suppose, actually, we could we could go through the chapters. But, but I think it, the good place to start might be with this later preface that he, he writes about. Because he asks the question then, he, he returns to the book a few years later and asks the question, how did it go? Because I mentioned up front, you know, this was the first book. He said this was the first book where he started doing philosophy. But he also then says, every book I ever done afterwards is related to this book. And he comes back and he, he asks the question, well, what, what went well? What, what didn't go so well? And the one chapter he said he would keep is the middle chapter. There's five chapters in the book. And the middle chapter is the shortest, it's the most concrete, and it's called The Image of Thought. And he really kind of lays out exactly what he's trying to do in the book. And the other chapters that sit either side of it are him doing it, if you like. And we can talk about what's in those in a moment. But the image of thought chapter, he really puts it, he puts it this way, that he wants to define a new image of thought uh, and liberate, which, which he defines as liberating thought from those images which imprison it. So dogmatic images of thought. The way in which... Um, we accept concepts uh, as common sense. We, when you and me talk about a concept such as being or identity, we think we know what they mean, and that's the ground to start our conversation on. And he wants to kind of dig underneath that, because he, he thinks the moment we accept a concept as understood, as traditional, as having a kind of genealogy with it, we are limited to talking about it in that way. And this is why Nietzsche's a really important figure for Deleuze, because Nietzsche realises quite soon in his writing that if he's going to be able to talk about things in his own way, he needs to create his own concepts to talk about them. And that's why, you know, with, with, when he writes Zarathustra, he, he, he can set himself free 
by inventing these new concepts, will to power, the overhuman, um, and, in, and eternal recurrence. By using these, he can break through from the traditional imprisoning thoughts of of traditional philosophy, of the canon, of the way in which everyone's talking amongst themselves, and try and find new ways of talking. And so, so even though we've talked about where does difference and repetition come from, and and how it's kind of like anchored in in Kant's critique of pure reason, I think it's probably more profitable look at the book in itself and see what he's trying to do in the book itself. Okay, so well, what then is he trying to do in the book itself? I think how how do these, how does this sort of I won't say binary but the idea that difference and repetition are some way connected how does that unfold I suppose the way to approach that is to is to think about some of the uh, examples of the way he, he he approaches how am I going to talk about difference and repetition and the key way he does it is through the famous syntheses the book has is well known for having these syntheses in them. Uh, people refer to them in, in many different ways, the three syntheses of time, the, Deleuze's three syntheses, but it's this idea of three syntheses. Okay, there's, a, there's a lot there, so do you want to maybe take one at a time? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, chapter two, he famously starts talking about uh, the three syntheses of time. Um, and he, and here we're going to see how difference and repetition works, because the three syntheses of time are three different repetitions. It's there in that sentence. Three different repetitions. So what are these three syntheses of time? So he calls the first synthesis of time. Uh, probably the best way to think about it is presentness, the arrow of time. We are in time, stepping through, moving along a path. Um, and the way in which the past and the future operate with this present are that the past is retained and we anticipate the future. So time's arrow, we're in presentness. But there's another idea of time as well, and that is approached through what he calls pastness, the pure past, memory, if you like, history. And this concept of time is very different from the other one. Yeah, this is a kind of well, a deep, a deep well of everything that we are, everything that we've been, everything that we've captured and thought about, the you know stuff that happened before us and that we've read about, the whole world, and the present operates there as kind of just like the focal point, the the merest focal point of the of the of the of this kind of whole well of pastness that we've got kind of welling up behind us. So traditionally in philosophy then that kind of makes sense because the idea would be what's the one thing that defines identity it's it's presentness we take this moment now to be all that there is and Deleuze is saying that's not actually the case there's a a huge genesis unfolding behind whatever constitutes us at this particular moment yeah and these are two and but his point is these are these are both different and valid concepts of time presentness times arrow is a is a genuine and pre we can operate with that we can understand it we've got empirical kind of feeling for how that operates if 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 um if you were walking down the road uh, late at night and somebody started chasing you you know you'd be very much operating in uh, in the uh, in the mode of presentness anticipating the future really quickly yeah retaining the past but moving on very quickly if, for example, um, I know you're going on holiday somewhere very nice very soon. If you were, uh, when you're sitting there in your trunks by the pool and... Um, you've been to hear about that too, <laughs> yeah. And you start mulling. You start mulling and you go into memory and you remember other holidays that you've had. And this is a very, very different notion of time. And it's very difficult to say that they cohere in any way. So there's two notions of time they are different and they are repetitions of time they are different repetitions of time now this is not exclusive to consciousness is it we'll, we'll get on to that he's talking it's not exclusive to consciousness at all but there's going to be a third notion of time as well and uh, probably can guess where we're going here quite logically it's going to be the future so what's this notion of time that 
is orientated towards the future. Well, it is, he calls it, this is some of the more creative language we get. He talks about it as being emptiness, as being a dark precursor, various other terminology like this. Is this empty time? It is absolutely, this is empty time. It, or And he'll call it pure time as well. And he'll, this is, the future time is very different from the past. Not. It's very different. It's because it's not yet. We don't, what is it? We don't even know. We, we've got. We can kind of think of it probabilistically. We can think of it in different ways. But it is a, a a sheet of black night in front of us. Essentially, we haven't encountered it yet. The moment we do encounter it, it's no longer there. It's always in front of us. It's a moving edge of nothingness that that is in front of us. So here we've got three notions of time. And, and here we've got three notions of time that are very, very different from each other. And these are the three syntheses of time, presentness, pastness, and futureness. They're all perspectives on the whole of time. Yeah, because we can think, as I, as I mentioned before, presentness, when we're on time's arrow, anticipates the future. Um, and we think about and retains the past. That big idea of memories, kind of this big block sitting there, but we're at the, the front end of that in the present. This idea of the future, if we th take about it as empty time, we can also see how it affects uh, the past. It, it, forgetting, it would be a good example of that. Now, forgetting is a is a version of the future in the past where we we've lost something, where we can't know what it is. So these three syntheses of time are disruptive. Are different modes of being, if you like, different ways of being in the world, in the, in the world temporally. Now, he's going to call these different things. Let's call them con the constitutive three syntheses of time. And this is difference. This is an example of difference and repetition. Yep, they're all repetitions of difference, of different types of time. But they're going to cohere in what he calls active synthesis. This is another one of the core concepts in the book he makes yeah. this distinction between passive synthesis and active synthesis or is it a, or is it even a distinction it, well maybe we can yeah so maybe could we start with passive synthesis well that's what we've been talking about so these passive syntheses they just happen these, these happen mm. to us right yeah? I see we're in the present we're in the past and we experience these modes they overlap you know, it's not like we can step from one to the other they, they, they overlap they disrupt each other you might be um, doing something that requires you to be in the present and do something like that. And then, just like in Proust's book, you encounter something and you fall back into memory in the past. Yep. Maybe you get a phone call and somebody tells you, hey, we no longer need you at NTU. Suddenly the future becomes a black wall bearing down on you. You know what I mean? I, no one's talked to me about that, honestly. It's just... <laughs> So these things overlap, they interweave, and, and, and what they are, they are what he calls passive synthesis. They happen to us, they happen in the mind, you know, they are the elements of consciousness at its very root, if you like, uh, but there are essentially unconscious ways of operating, and they cohere in active synthesis. So these passive synthesis cohere in active synthesis. So what's active synthesis? The active synthesis of time is just seeing the world in its everyday way of being, where you don't worry about these different modes, memory and 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 the present and the future, all interact in a in a way that are unproblematic. Yep. So there's your past, present, and future. It's all set out for you. You can think back. You know who you were the other day. You know who you're going to be tomorrow. They are unquestioning modes of temporal identity so active synthesis is he thinks it's so it's, it's unproblematic yet at the same time it's a type of disruption now normally we would say we say disruption is a is a bad thing unless you're yes. uh, unless you're Elon Musk or something like that but uh, for Deleuze it's a positive or an it affirmation can, it, it's, it's, yeah because it it, it, it it affirms change, and that is a good thing. Not, not or it's a good thing, sort of theoretically, not necessarily good or bad in a moral sense. 
Yeah, I mean, it's. It, I don't even think it, it, it's good or bad in any kind of sense. It just will. He's. It's an ontology. It's just so the way he's trying are. to explain why identity is an odd concept. Yeah, because it, it, you could say you have identity, and I might be ten years before I meet you again, and you might be looking a bit very different, and you might have been through things that have changed you very much you know so it's a worrying concept identity because it's it's giving you something the same even in logic a equals a just imagine that in your head well they're in two different spatial places that in itself is a bit problematic because that a doesn't really equal that a the moment you've got any kind of visualization about it identity is a very very problematic concept to him but we operate with it. We operate with it absolutely fine. It's but what's useful, the genesis? It's instrumental. Absolutely, absolutely. But what's going on underneath it? And for him, it is what he will always call the three syntheses. So we've talked about them through time. Yep, through past, the present, and the future. We can talk about them in other different ways as well. We can talk about them through... So he's, he's going to talk about... And this is where Kant comes in, because Kant obviously sets up uh, the critique of pure reason through a conversation about space and time. So he's going to, Deleuze is going to say, well, we can look at this, this idea of three, uh, of, um, of identity, or the critique of identity through space as well. And there he will talk about how, um, how he, it, spatial concepts themselves operate through these three syntheses, essentially. So you've spoken a lot about the sort of the temporal dimension of this book, but you know that is still sort of quite abstract. Well, I mean, I suppose they're all abstract spaces, not exactly. You know, it's an abstract <laughs> book. Yeah, it's an abstract book. Um, but when he's talking about this act of synthesis, this idea of disruption, this acceptance of it. So the act of synthesis is is how disruption coheres. Active synthesis is how is identity. Yeah. And that identity temporally is disrupted by the three passive syntheses of, of time, which are the present, succession, past, memory, future, emptiness. Yeah. So does uh, so does that then play out in terms of how he understands space? It does. Uh, he, he's going to say that there are, as well as there being um, the three syntheses of time there are three syntheses of space and the three syntheses of consciousness as well so he's going to repeat this kind of like formula these three constitutive syntheses that cohere into an active synthesis in the domains of space and in the domains of consciousness as well and through the history of philosophy so when we talked about the syntheses of time he talks about those through figures such as Hume for presentness Bergson for memory and Nietzsche for this idea of the future, eternal recurrence, so to speak. Um, but he'll talk about these things through other philosophers as well, talk about them through Freud. When he moves on to talk about space, that's where he again goes back to the history of philosophy and starts thinking about how space itself can be disruptive and how it coheres in identity. Yeah, I'm well. I mean, so it's quite abstract, all that. So I'm trying to get a handle on it. So you know, in a sort of an everyday sort of philosophy of everyday life sense, you know, space is the sort of the banal understanding of space is, you know, in terms of distance. You know, there's a here, there, there's an up, a down. There's a sort of a kind of we understand a dimensionality. Yeah. But I'm presuming that's a very very limited way of understanding what space actually is for Deleuze. Yeah, so he his active synthesis of space, yeah, is going to be identity, and he's going to align that with um, extension, x y different dimensions like in a, space, like a triangle. Yeah, and it's you know, I mean, philosophically, you don't have any trouble with space negotiating it in the everyday. Yep, up and down steps, around. You can look and see things in the distance. You can, you you can map the whole world around you. There's you at the centre of the universe, yeah, and everything is spiralling around you. And you can, you can reach out your hand and you can see where they are. You can touch another person. So we accept all of these things, quite you know. And Deleuze wants to then say, well, where do these, where does this everyday notion of space come from? And this is where he's going to, again, repeat those three syntheses 
in spatial terms. So the, the, I suppose the first two are, um, you kind of alluded to it, is the idea of relation. So this is kind of the equivalent of the idea of presentness in time, um, kind of operates with relation in space. You know, you don't need any notion of uh, space itself when you've got relation. And he takes this from Leibniz. He takes this from Leibniz's conception of relative space, that you've got different um, objects around and I can map myself in comparison to those. So that's one notion of space. And we operate in it all the time. But then you've got Newton's idea of space, which is very, very different, which is there is absolute space. And this Deleuze aligns with the second synthesis of time, which is memory. So you've got the whole depth of space, whole absolute of space that is there as a given before you even arrive. It maps out everything, the whole universe. It's this, you know, the Newtonian concept of space. So you've got Leibniz and that. And, um, and the third synthesis of space that he's going to introduce is the one through Berkeley, where Berkeley sort of kind of looks askew at this idea of absolute space and say, well, can we even have a notion of space without me being there? Without So in, it's the idea of sensuousness, the, the sensuous intensity of space that we kind of like um, encounter every moment. Now, these are very, very different notions of space. So famously, there is um, uh, a really big argument between Leibniz and Newton, or uh, Clark, who was working for Newton, and um, sends letters backwards and forwards from Leibniz, and they uh, have a big argument about these two notions of space. They're very different notions of space. And of course, Berkeley's then challenging those two notions of space as well, with his idea of sensuous space. Now, for Deleuze, so we're here, we've got three different notions of space, the, the relative, the absolute and the sensuous, you know, our intensive kind of encounter with it, that philosophically are very different models. But with, when we operate in the world, we can we just cohere them and allow them to come together very easily. You know, we don't we don't worry about these different notions. We, we can quite easily think about absolute space, relative space, and our encounter with space. Um, very unproblematically. And do you think we do that? Do you think all of those notions are playing out when we are walk around, when we go to the shop, when we, I don't know, put washing on the line, when we uh, do the dishes? In some way, absolute space is at, at stake, uh, relative space and sensuous space. No, they're not at all. Um, this is why Deleuze will call them common sense and good sense and call them a dogmatic image of thought. But they are different ways of thinking about the world that make us, if you like, think again, that, that, in, that, that allow thought to escape from prison, the, the, you know, the idea of philosophy. Now, it's important to say this is how he introduces the idea of space. And it's a, his, it's a history of philosophy argument, yeah? Famously, this is how Kant begins the critique of pure reason, with a critique of these three positions, and then comes up with his own kind of notion of space out the back end of it. So Deleuze is positioning himself in that argument, but he'll do he'll do the think about space in lots of different ways as well. He'll think about it through um, more modern versions because this is a very scientific argument we've talked about. Here. He'll think about it in in different ways as well, um, and he'll think about time in different ways as well through different models. So he's always trying to think about ways in which. Science is, is, you know, the concept of absolute space has really just broken down now. We've got no notion of absolute space in science anymore. Um, so it's a history of philosophy argument. But what he's trying to give you an example of there is how these different models are disruptive of each other and allow us to think about space in different ways. So, Dave, what then is Deleuze doing to differentiate himself from these three traditional models of space, the sort of um, Berkeley, Leibniz and Newton. The crucial bit, it's not what he's, what he's doing to, to, uh, to get away from them, but he's saying, look, at this moment, he's a truly historical philosopher, again in the Nietzschean sense, yeah? at, this moment in time, at that moment in time when these three models arose, 
Yeah, what was at stake? And what he's trying to say is, think about it, Leibniz, um, Newton and Berkeley are always trying to say their model is the correct one. What he's trying to say is, look, they all can exist together. We can't think them together at the same time, so to speak, but they are disruptive of one another. So he's not trying to give you new concepts. What he's trying to do is look at the difference between these repetitions. So again, we've got difference from repetition. These are different notions of space that are repeating in different kind of ways that we can operate. And we can operate through each of them in an absolute fine way. So what he's trying to do is, is put dis um, dispersive models together and show how they kind of trouble each other. Yeah, if you if you if you've got this idea of relation, absolute space troubles it. If you've got this idea of absolute space, relative space troubles it. And if you've got an idea of well, hang on, all space is created from sensory, uh, from our mind, that troubles both of those as well. Yet we can operate with them quite well. So he's not trying to introduce a new concept as such. What he's trying to put do is put disparates together to show you how they are illusory so to speak they are problematic and in th and when we try to land on one of them yeah we kind of get pushed to another okay so putting on my sort of aristotle head i mean and you did mention leibniz as well does does motion come into this in any way movement i know we talked about this the last time and we were talking about the, yeah. uh, the when we're talking about Dulles in cinema, that uh, you know, it's the, 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 it's the time image and the movement image are, are very, very important for him. Now, at this stage in sort of nineteen sixty-eight, is he is is does motion does movement have a, a pride of place in difference and repetition? It, if we were talking about this synthesis of time again, yeah. So when we were looking at those notions of, of time that were what we call constitutive or passive, so the presentness, the pastness and the futureness, succession, um, memory and emptiness, they would be pure temporal notions. And, when, um, and the everyday would be that idea of movement. That's how you could, how you could see that. There. And indeed, uh, the same would be with space then. That we move through these spaces, but they're they're the everyday. It's the everyday notion. He'll he'll call it chronological time, comprehensive space, and it's our everyday notion of operating in those good sense, common sense, how we operate in the world. And movement would be another name for that. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a kind of a view of Deleuze out there that he's, you know, that kind of very sort of postmodern idea that he's all about, you know, change, flux, and and and, and difference, and he sort of privileges them but you're I think you're saying that it's a lot more complicated than than that yeah I don't I, I don't think he wants to he wants to find the genesis of these static notions of identity representation movement um, and the privileging if there is some is in their in their genetic nature in how they allow change to happen and how if we think through them and think with them yep we can grab hold of the change that we're undergoing naturally that we do not see so there there is a slight privileging there yeah absolutely but um at this point with 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 a difference in repetition with with trying to lay out this ontological but non-metaphysical kind of like network of passive syntheses and active syntheses. Um, he's looking at how identities form and, and how they disperse, how identities form, but how they can be... Coalesce. How they can be, yeah, and how they can be set free from, how you can set yourself free from identities that imprison us. I think that's probably something an area I want to head in again, because there is a kind of a an ethical and political spirit behind this ontology. Maybe we can talk about that at the end, but um, just in terms of uh, getting the sort of a full sense of the book, we, we there's still another uh, synthesis that we need to talk yeah, no, about. Yeah, I think this will this will naturally lead on to that conversation. Right. So the so the other synthesis is the third synthesis, which is the synthesis of consciousness. Spot on. Absolutely. Yeah. So Deleuze will write something along the lines of you know actualization, identity, whatever takes place in three series. Uh, space, time, and also consciousness. He, he says something like, every spatio-temporal dynamism is accompanied by the uh, emergence of an elementary consciousness. So there's time, 
there's space, there's consciousness. These are the three coordinates that he's going to look at. And again, it's going to, we're going to, so we're going to get another set of difference and repetitions. And of course, each of these three syntheses are themselves repetitions with difference of each other. Yeah. Uh, so we've had the temporal syntheses repeated in spatial syntheses, repeated in uh, the syntheses of consciousness. So what are the elements here? So the first one is individuation. We are individuated beings. Yep. We are not individuals as such. But, you know, we're born from an egg. We are, I can see your outline. What we're, makes us this thing? We're individuated beings. He's going to call the second uh, synthesis differentiation. And this is a species inheritance, if you like, which, of course... Like an ev our evolutionary origins? And totally, going back and, and, you know, we connect with other species and they kind of cohere back in time to to uh, a kind of kind of like field of just uh, of murky understanding of where we came from and we've kind the of primordial been, ooze and we've 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 differentiated ourselves out of, out of that ooze and and we are not completely and utterly um, a different species we, you know you can see common 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 commonalities between you as a human being and monkeys and dogs and and even a little bit the level of DNA bananas. So that's the second synthesis of, of consciousness of being, if you like, of, of the body. So we have, the first one is? Individuation. individuation. You're an individuated thing in the present. So here, this is how it's going to connect, yeah? You're in the present. You are this kind of relative being relative to other things. So, so you can see how they're going to all join up here. Yep. The second one is, is differentiation, which joins up with the synthesis of memory. Yep. And joins up with the kind of idea of absolute space, the kind of whole of everything that there has ever been. Yep. And this is not just restricted to biology. It could be, could it like, it could be geological potentially. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. So what's the third? What is the third? What's is? the third? <laughs> He's going to call it dramatization. Dramatization. Dramatization, and perhaps the way to well, that think. That makes of sense to me in a way because he's he, he does come out of Hume, and uh, you know, what does Hume famously say that the self is a fiction, the self is a theatre. Yeah, we're not just talking about selves here either. So the dramatization would be, uh, let's compare it, it to both. So we are individuals. So, so at the at the same moment, we are collectives. And we are collectives going forward and we're reforming and we're becoming collectives and new collectives. You're in a house here with various family members and pets and um, you, you, you're becoming together in different ways. And that's very different as well from this notion of differentiation. So what we're here with is synthesis, just like that synthesis of the future as well. It's going into. So these things map upon each other. And in fact, you can kind of take a step back from these synthesis of time, synthesis of space, synthesis of consciousness, go, what is the general kind of formulation that's happening here? And um, he will call them the first one. He will call it the foundation. So foundation. And the next one he'll call it the grounding, where the, where the, where the foundation sits within. So that would be memory, depth. That's the, the, found, the, the grounding of the individual uh, in the present and you'll call the third one the ungrounding the thing that kind of upsets everything yeah because becoming upsets all these notions of being an individual and upsets all these notions of of being um, human sometimes and what it is to be human we become uh, other than we are one thing I gotta ask about that is that is he using like consciousness in a very idiosyncratic since like you know when we think of consciousness with I don't know you know sort of a Cartesian way it's put minimally it's awareness that goes on in our minds between our ears roughly geographically but that's, uh, yeah that's you know, a far yes that's a, a good question he's a far deeper sense of consciousness than that but could a stone be conscious it so to put it sort of flippantly it, it would be all the way down there is no there is no diff <laughs> There is no kind of like moment that consciousness arises as being a kind of epiphenomena out of a human being. It's not like the spark has been given to humans and we are conscious animals and, and all other animals are somehow poor in the world or anything like that. 
ants have architecture, birds have tools, they've all got consciousness. Even a stone. I mean, I, I, that's, that's a real traditional yeah, metaphysical is, yeah. question. That's it Aristotle, is. you know, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's all a down. We don't know, you know, is it this idea of panpsychism kind of like right. plays all the way down to this? How far do we go up as well? You know, um, the question you've got to answer there, and, it, and, it, and I suppose this is, it comes back to, this is another Nietzschean question. Is this even the right question to ask? Mm. You know, because what we're trying to deal with here was the experience of being in the world. Yeah, I mean, I'm choosing sort of linguistically there, you know, a stone, because that is probably, it was a rigid designator, which uh, I think is a concept by uh, Kripke. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, the stone is something we take as something foundational. Mm. We take as something enduring, mm. uh, as something lasting, as something that can't be broken. It's, mm. It sort of seeps through our language. Mm. And yet again, if you look at, say, a volcano, you see stone melt and it moves fast, you know. So would that be perhaps a useful example for trying to understand what he means? Like when he talks about, you know, the consciousness of a stone or the awareness, maybe maybe they're the wrong words again, as you say. Maybe it's, I don't know, maybe sentience or a sense of how they're affected or how they affect and how they affect. So the idea is that, you know, on, on some level we take the rock as a rigid designator, you know, as something foundational. Yet, despite this, you know, it actually isn't. Because, you know, if you, if you look at a volcano, it's full of lava and magma and all of these things. And it's very, very volatile and full of movement and full of difference, perhaps. And, uh, you know, what we take to be a stone is actually full of, I don't know, well, how would you put it, Dave, a sort of sentience, activity, affectivity? I think activity is a good one there. And, uh, and yeah, you, t- you talk about that... A stone being a rigid designator as being a, a you know bedrock of something, but we can go back beyond that to atoms and and those start to unfurl and those start to become crazy different things and we enter the world of quantum physics and suddenly you know all of these things are happening and we've got to ask ourselves do multiple universes unfold from this and we're kind of get, we're kind of leaving difference and repetition behind as we go as as we go down that path I think yeah I was I mean I was gonna maybe I can ask in a way as bringing that back then I can talk about is does science play a role in difference in repetition I mean what is Deleuze's view of scientific activity I mean it was you know when we talk about that the the grand picture there you know it is kind of lurking in the background or I think uh, that's what I'm taking from Mm, what you're saying I think I think um in this book as well, you really get Deleuze thinking about what he will call the three big domains of human thought, and he'll he'll talk about it a number of times. And one is philosophy, one is art, and one is science. Um, so you can see how we've already been talking about these notions of space and uh, through Leibniz, um, through Newton, and through Berkeley. You know, these aren't just these aren't philosophical concepts. They they are scientific ways of understanding the world. What he's interested in, again, I need to say this is not really the concepts themselves. You know, they, these these gaps, these 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 places, these three syntheses can be filled by any number of different things. Um, but the but the way in which they repeat with differences, the way in which they are different concepts that rub up against each other that are, that you kind of can't think them both at the same time, all three at the same time. And that itself allows you to free up yourself from an, a, 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 a notion of, that is solid and identity and common sense. Yeah, well, that's a good good place uh, to, 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 to talk about another question that I'm interested in. And that can maybe help us lead on to questions of sort of ethics and politics, which you want to talk about. And in uh, one of the things he sort of valorizes in difference and repetition is he valorizes paradox over uh, common sense. Yeah. And uh, so, and uh, that's, to my ears at least, that's a very sort of a platonic distinction. Uh, even though I, I, I think Plato might be one of his, uh, his, 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 uh, his enemies. Um, but sort of paradox in, you know, it's, it's that which is paradox, it is without doxa, without, it is that which is without opinion. And in some way, he's, he's celebrating uh, paradox in some way, which traditionally we take to be a limitation of thoughts. If you come to a paradox, there's no way forward, there's no movement, there's, you're, you're, you're kind of, you can't re- reach reconciliation. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think those one way to look at the what we've been talking about here with these three different notions of time that form the, the temporal syntheses, the spatial thing. These are these are paradoxical moments. So this is another way of these difference and repetition are themselves paradoxes. He will go on to write a book called Logic for Sense and. I think it's 44 chapters in it and say you know he's a here you go there's 44 paradoxes this is a book of but he will also call them the series and he's called these different temple uh, uh ways in which time operates um uh, they're, they're paradoxical in itself in the way in the way in which they they cannot cohere you you can't cohere the the, the notion of succession is very different from the notion of of this idea of memory and it's very hard for them to, and even brain scientists talk about them happening at different places in the brain now, you know, so. And so kind of, yeah, so, I mean, is he exhorting us to uh, engage in practice? Because in an everyday sense, you kind of think, oh God, life is paradoxical, like, you know, that's, that's not good. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. Yeah, okay, so I, I, I kind of get what you're saying here. So this idea... Identity is the problematic concept for him, not 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 paradox. Well, yeah, and he uh, he uh, identifies common sense with identity. Yes. Okay, so could maybe you uh, sort of uh, elaborate on that a little bit? So we've, we've we've kind of been talking about it, you know, common sense identities, our being in the world, who we are. Yeah, we such such store by where we are born, by um, the connections that we have. That they all the uh, you, we talk about them as being natural, organic, you know, unproblematic ways of being in the world, um, and our, our kind of identities and our identities of individuals, as as families, as collectives, as as nations, as people, all spin around this notion of identity. Yep, and suddenly we start pitting identities against each other, so. But what happens when we think about them identity as being already problematic? So perhaps this is the the, the real way to to look at it. So when I look at um, how to talk about an identity, I having an identity, I then another identity, somebody else becomes another. So it's the relationship between I and other. And I suppose the shortcut to to saying how Deleuze is going to deal with this through what we've been talking about is saying. I am already another difference in itself. I'm already different from myself temporally at different times, spatially, obviously moving around, and consciousness-wise as well. Um, you are a colony. You know, we made up of bacteria and 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 different uh, kind of materials that all kind of come together and form together and age and grow old and then pass away just as we came into being and there is no moment of stasis in any of that there is no the eye and the individual and the identity that emerges out of this cohesion of um, stardust um, and earth and matter that, that dissipates finally all identity is a mirage on the top of that it's a way in which we cohere and keep ourselves together now we need to do that yeah because we just be a mess yeah but that's it's still nonetheless a mirage and that's the opportunity to understand that that we um that we can join with other identities that we that they can intermix that we can become other people that we can become different things and that's where thinking takes flight absolutely and that's where we escape the dogmatic image of thought um, which is just a challenge, you know. He's not going to. He's not going to define what a new image of thought is, other than to say, it's not a dogmatic image of thought. Because what does a dogmatic image of thought does do? It imprisons us. So it's ways of thinking that escape the prisons of thought. I, I you know, I know who I am. I'm, I'm English. That's all you need to know. Yeah, so you are more than sort of Dave from Cornwall who lives in Manchester. You are that, but you're a whole pile of other things as well. I think uh, Will Larger was on the podcast says what's distinctive about uh, sort of Deleuze. Well, he was talking to us about Levinas. What he said is that sort of, I think Deleuze starts from sort of the outside in rather than from the, the yeah. inside out. 
I am already another. You know, so our notion, I'm not divining myself. Identity is, is defining yourself in opposition to someone else. Yep. Whereas for him, we are already differences. We are repetitions of differences ourselves. We already other people. We get our notion of what it is to be another. We're even other versions of ourselves, I presume. Totally, absolutely. You know, back to the David Bowie example, a brilliant example. I is already another. In terms of things like sort of traditional philosophical questions, like say something like, you know, a self, a sense of agency, you know, He's 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 not saying that they don't have a place, just a very 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 small place. They are necessary fictions, and they're ones in which we operate in the everyday world, but they can cohere and become very solid, and they can become limitations. So that's the other question I wanted to ask you about that. You say you say he's, uh, you mentioned that he's uh, you know uh, sort of Bergson and. Uh, uh, Berkeley and all these other influences. I mean, Nietzsche must be here as well. And is there, if not necessarily in difference of repetition, is there a kind of a therapy in this? You know, is there a, a sense that if we understand the world as sort of, if we understand I as other, uh, that is better for us in some way, or it is healthier, maybe? Yeah. Uh, so I, I am already another. We are multiple selves, and I'm a fractured I. Yep. And we, and identity coheres those differences and repetitions of consciousness together and we come about as identities um so on one hand you know an identity i said it before is a necessary fiction it's a it's a drawing up it's a gathering together i mean and your point about nietzsche at least uh most basic ontological levels right you know he talks about us as being you know sort of like moments that are that are, that are, that are a boat upon a flowing river yeah, that's what consciousness is. Um, so ontologically, we're talking about the same kind of thing here, I guess. The therapy angle, well, absolutely. So um, we talked a bit about science. Yeah, you asked me about science. So let's let's think about um, what he says is about art. I mean, there's a there's a great way in which he talks about how how we can see this emerging out of art. Art is, in fact, the the primary place where we can encounter difference and repetition. Um, because Very Nietzschean, isn't it? Yeah, yeah absolutely. It, it allows it... Uh, I'm just trying to think of the quote here. It says something like, the highest object of art um, is to bring all of these difference and repetitions into play simultaneously. The present the past, the future, relative, absolute, and sensuous, you know, the individuation, differentiations, and uh, the dramatizations, bring them all into play. And um, these are divergences, differences, disguises, displacements, and these are what bubbling around there uh, within us. And it's, it, I think it's really crucial to say that when we talked about, you know, the self and the I and other, he doesn't start with you are an individual. Yeah, that's the first synthesis and somehow the we are individuals, we are collectives, we are assemblages, we are becoming new, we have a history, we are individual. All of these things are interweaving. So it's, it's not kind of like, uh, you know, the very blunt difference between a kind of like... Um, conservative and very socialist kind of difference where one puts society first and where other puts the individual first I mean an opposition of binaries this is why it's always important there's three for Deleuze yeah you'll never find twos yeah you'll always find threes because he just wants to break down those binary opposites and show how things are a little bit more complicated so we are individuals we are um, part of a history and a collective and a tradition and a species but also we're all becoming new and we're always moving forward and these three things interplay you can't say one is first second or third one is above and beyond the other yeah i mean i guess he's not being prescriptive per se you know he's not giving you uh this is how to live at least a difference in repetition yeah, no, except from, um, as you say, you know, to, to escape that dig dogmatic image of thought. 
to to not be imprisoned by thinking that comes before you know and this affects philosophy science and art you don't want to be imprisoned by or by the in art the people that says you can't do that and the science that goes well it's, it's all right we we understand let's how the universe works now let's go down the pub so um yeah so and then that's the so, so yeah, yeah there's no set of there's no like code or set of principles in Deleuze I wouldn't read though I mean he does strike me uh, he did have some interest in the Stoics I think uh, isn't that correct so I mean I guess that might be more an ontological or you know by ontology I mean how he perceives reality to be or how he interprets reality to be um, but uh, you know in the Stoics they say you know focus on the present you know the future doesn't exist the past doesn't exist all that is is now and that's the thing you can control Right, that's, I mean, that's a very sort of a, a sort of pigeon's doorsism, yeah. I guess. You know, it's more complicated than that. But I think probably, I mean, Deleuze's would would probably find that problematic, would he? Well, again, this would be again. What he's always trying to do is put disparates together. So you you can you can speak that Stoic philosophy quite well. He, he deals with this actually in a logical sense. But let's not go down that rabbit hole. Um, but you know, if you've got this this notion of time and this way of being in the world, that doesn't preclude other notions, and they don't really fit together. He's always looking for those disparates. Remember, difference and repetition. So, always that there are these different elements within us that are different, but and those things are repeating, and they are different from each other and repeating within each other. So he he's not going to he's what he's always going to do is put disparates together. You know, one of his favourite mantras is and 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 not or, not the individual or society, the individual and society. Yeah, and that's why he's. Uh, I guess I mean, when I teach him to my students, the postgrads and things like that, they're. I think what they often enjoy about Deleuze is that he's, you know, despite this language of negation the negativity at empty time he is actually a very very affirmative philosopher yeah and I, I I wouldn't even see that empty times being a negative comment it's certainly a frightening he tries to he, he's trying to get the affects in there all the time with these concepts yeah these are not these aren't just blindly deployed concepts so when he talks about succession he talks about it as time's arrow as the pulsing beat the vital moment of life he talks about memory he talks about the wealth of that and the way in which we you know we can sort of like be swallowed up by it now both of these are, have horrific dimensions to them yeah and so the this future empty time is also the very thing which is liberating yeah, we don't know what's going to happen. We can't say what's going to happen. Yeah, and that is a liberation. It's a type of freedom. It's total freedom. Pure time is is total freedom from that perspective. Because where is determination caught up in? It's caught up in in um, in the succession and memory. Okay, so so you can think and operate with freedom and determination at the same time. I mean, it's just, again, these are Nietzschean questions, very Bergsonian questions. Yeah, for Bergson, freedom and determination are two sides of the same coin. Yeah, and the concept uh, itself. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> the concept. They just go back to this dogmatic image of thought because the moment you use the word freedom. You bring all of the history of philosophy around what's been talked about with that, yeah? And it's very hard to break out of that. It's a dogmatic image of thought, imprisoned thought. So you get stuck in a binary between freedom and determinism. Exactly, absolutely. And that's why he's... Because he's, he's, uh, the concept of freedom has an identity to it. And you could we could sit here and talk about that. And you just want to say, but, ah, but how can we escape that identity? Yeah, well, I'm wondering about the. Is there then sort of political implications to this? Uh, I guess not necessarily in uh, difference in repetition, although it does touch on it a little bit. You know, so I kind of sort of talked about the ethical sense. I wondering is there, you know, does a a type of politics emerge from this very radical ontology that he's trying to execute? This is going to be developed over over his career, particularly with Guattari. Um, Anti-Oedipus, thousand Anti-Oedipus in particular is a, is is a really good book for that. Um, but it'd be, but it, but you know, some of the some of the political dimensions we've already talked about. Yep. 
that how can you think about the individual and society at the same time? And that's what he wants us, you know, wants us to be able to think about these things at the same time. That they they are problematic. They are paradoxes. It is a paradox, but that doesn't mean you have to choose. It doesn't mean you have to choose. It means you can, you know, if you are already another, if you are already an assemblage, if your family is another assemblage, it's almost like a fractal model. Yeah, I can see how that would be sort of a liberating thought, if you think it like, because it's like, you know, because we become we become congealed in, you know, these type of modes, like, you know, become congealed in my team, whatever that is, you know, Man City, Conservative, Socialist, and in some way it's probably a bit more liberating to say I can be a Conservative and a Socialist uh, at the same time, or I can try and... I think that'd be, one of my friends would say that'd be, that'd be the definition of being liberal. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the thought did cross my mind. I was like, this all sounds a bit third, third way, this, uh, Dave. This is, like a, this is like early Clinton or Blair. But already, see, already what we want to do is land on an identity. Yeah, we yeah what we want to do, that's what we want to do. This reminds me of Blair, you know. Yeah, that, that's it. You know, the, oh, here's a word. I can define you with that word. That defines you. That tells me everything I need to know about you. Put you away in a box. Bye. And you're saying that uh, it's better or it's it's a, productive a productive way of thinking about, you know, I mean, in these uncertain times we are in, Patrick, we already know that that every party we're looking at is a fractured party. They've all got a history. They're all becoming something new. Yep. Um, the, I don't know if you've been watching years and years, the Russell T. Davis show, that set five years in the future, and they, they do some great little plays on there they don't make too much of it but they call the Labour Party that's there existing classic Labour Party (laughs) (laughs) they don't define what that means but you see what you know and you you get get people saying it don't you we are the Labour Party has already always stood for this Um, the Labour Party has never had any racist elements in it has never had that kind of and you just need to dig beneath the surface and look at the way in which uh you know some of the campaigns from the 70s and earlier were were, were, were done underneath of that and probably later yeah uh, uh, yeah you know let's not go to the present day that's a different podcast that's yeah, a different yeah. podcast entirely you yeah. know and this happens across all but then you know and then you get a certain kind of uh, Labour or Tory on and go, we're a broad church. We're made up of loads of different elements and that allows us to be flexible and develop and think through new policies and all of this. That and the other. Deleuze is just going to say to you, look, you, you're sitting there throwing stones at each other, but you're both saying exactly the same things from slightly different positions. So in Difference and Repetition, then there is a kind of desire to see antagonism as something very very limited yeah yeah i mean you'll say it's a book of contradictions but that's not in a sense contradiction to a and b but these paradoxes are all all playing out underneath that you know there are contradictions everywhere we look think of it as a critical philosophy yeah when you it allows you to think about the, the question of identity and just take a step back and say, well, hang on, has it always been like this? Are you always like this? You know, the claims people make. Yeah, now, um, I suppose the kind of, we, I need to, we need to sort of bring it to a close because we've been talking for quite some time. Um, the, I guess, to, to, to bring it to a close, I mean, why should people read this book? Why do you think they should take this on and if they do take it on um, do you have any tips or advice because it is hard it's a hard it's a hard it's a it's a, it's a, it's a tough but perhaps rewarding book yeah I mean there's a couple of uh, great primers out there there's one so if you if you're gonna if you're gonna take this book on read the prefaces <laughs> Deleuze says you could skip to the conclusion <laughs> and just read that and you'll get everything you need to know. That's my type of book. Yeah, then. absolutely. Um, there's lots of different ways into it. Uh, as Deleuze himself says that the third chapter, the short chapter, the image of thought chapter is really what he retains on and builds going forward. So that would be one way. And that's quite, that's a relatively easy read. 
you know. Um, the other would be to have a look at a couple of um, people that have done some work in this field. Henry Summers Hall's Difference and Repetition is exceptionally good in this. Um, and um, another way to, to approach it would be to uh, approach it from one of Deleuze's later books, perhaps, or earlier books. So I mentioned Proust and Signs. If you, that's that's quite a short book, but everything that's in difference and repetition, at least at a kind of ontological level and the way these signs move and paradoxes work and series operate, is already laid out there. So that's a nice entry point. That's a lovely entry point. It's a really kind of short and um, way in. And even, indeed, if you pick up Anti-Oedipus, which is a lot more grounded in um, kind of the structuralist um, desire terminology, they talk about the three syntheses in there and how they operate with regards to culture. It's a bit more, less abstract, less ontological. You can, you know, you can grab on some, some concepts. So they're the three ways in, you know, image of time, in the middle of the book one of the good readers henry summers hall one or is is my recommended reading of the week and um the other would be um go to anti-oedipus and start there and work backwards <laughs> okay dave thank you very much for being with us my pleasure thanks Pat. <laughs> <laughs>